So I'm going to start off with a question this morning. I want you to think about it a little bit, maybe have a little participation just briefly in a room uh, with this many people in it. Can be a little risky, so we'll just keep it brief. But if I if I told you, think about three types of people, okay? Three types of people, and I want you to tell me what these people have in common, okay? References on a resume, like personal references or professional references on a resume. Reviewers for an Amazon product, with their stars and comments and whatnot. And then third, people taking the stand in a court trial. What do these three types of people have in common? Any thoughts on that? Anyone want to take a shot? They're giving testimony. Very good. They're all giving testimony. And testimony or witness is important in our world. And if I were to ask, and I'm not, this is just a rhetorical question, but to think about, well, why? Why why are witnesses and testimonies of all kinds, I gave you three examples, but they're all different kinds. Why are they important in this world? Why are they even necessary in this world? Why is that a thing here on earth that we rely upon? It's because we know deep down that people inherently are not trustworthy because we know that people can deceive us. We know we're all deceived and we're all deceptive and we can be tricked. So, for example, when it comes to the references on a resume, if you're an employer and you want to hire somebody, you're going to contact those references to hear a testimony about that person as to their character and their competence. When it comes to Amazon products, and we all, you've had the experience, you order something and the product you end up with is not what you wanted or not what you thought it would be, or it doesn't last as long as you hoped it would last and you spent your good hard-earned money on it. And so we look at the testimonies and with Amazon, my goodness, they just go on and on forever, right? All the different three stars, four stars, five stars, comments, all the details, And that's helpful because we want to get a glimpse of what is the truth? What is this thing actually going to be like? And I don't want to be fooled by the person trying to sell it to me. And when it comes to court cases, which obviously is of the utmost importance in our society, court cases, witnesses are brought to the stand so that we might determine, or that the judge and the jury, I should say, might determine whether the defendant is guilty or innocent. It's very important. We need these witnesses. It's the way things work in this world because we have a hard time trusting people and rightfully so because we know that deep down we ourselves are deceived and deceitful, that we ourselves are not trustworthy, and really nobody else is entirely either. And so we need witnesses and testimonies. And interestingly, what we see in this text this morning is we see Jesus presenting witnesses, those who testify of his authenticity, those who declare his credibility. And ironically, though he himself, if anyone did not need such witnesses, it's Jesus who didn't really need them in a very real sense. And yet, because God is so committed to pursuing us, to persuading us of his goodness, of who he is, He even, in one sense, plays by our rules and say, okay, you want witnesses, I'm going to give you witnesses. And so that's what we're going to see. We're going to see Jesus presenting witnesses. And in their culture, I I should mention, 
They understood it was in Scripture several places in the Bible, and I'm sure you've heard this, by the mouth of two or three witnesses, let everything be established, right? Well, that was in their Old Testament Scriptures. Jesus knew that. He knew their culture. He knew their customs. And so he's kind of playing along, and he's saying, I'm going to give you witnesses. The context is, and before we look at our passage, I want to have you look with me briefly here at... Verses 15, 16, and 18, just to to remind you of who Jesus is interacting with in this context. He's healed the man at the pool of Bethesda. That created significant controversy because it was on the Sabbath day, and all the religious people were really up in arms over that, really upset about that. And so who here are the people he is talking with in this scene here in John 5. In verse 15, you see reference to the Jews. It says, the man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. You see that term again in verse 16. For this reason, the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. And then go down to verse 18. For this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. So Jesus, in this context, is interacting with the Jews. Now, Pastor Rob and I have made this point, but just to remind you, for those who haven't been with us, I want to describe for you who the Jews were. This is not an ethnic slur. Okay, this is, this is specifically referring to the Jews as a national people, but also to the Jews as a religious establishment. Think of the people who were being led by the Pharisees. Back in John chapter 3, Jesus interacted with Nicodemus, and it says in that chapter, in verse 1, that Nicodemus was a Pharisee, a ruler of the Jews, so a leader of the religious community. So here's what I would ask for you to think about with me as we look at this conversation between Jesus and the Jews. I want us to hear Jesus talking to us because we are the religious community. There are a lot of people still sleeping this morning or doing something else. But we are the church. We are the people who care about God, the things of God, our Bibles, Well, these were the people to whom Jesus was speaking at this time. People just like us. And the question, and what was happening was, the question was, is, as they were evaluating Jesus, watching him, hearing him, this was the question in their minds. Is this guy trustworthy? I mean, is he really worthy as we've been considering throughout, as the same, of the same honor as his father? Is he really the Messiah? Is he really able to give me life? Is he really able to save me? And this is kind of like Jesus on trial. As they're evaluating that and saying, ah, not sure about this guy. So, let's work our way through. Beginning in verse 31, it says, If I alone testify about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who testifies of me, and I know the testimony which he gives about me is true. This is Jesus saying, look, if I were to just testify of myself according to the way things go in this world, then that wouldn't be valid. But I'm not not doing that. There's another, and really he, he will mention several others, but he has a preeminent witness in mind, of course. He says, there's another who testifies of me, and I know the testimony which he gives about me is true. Let's look at this first witness he mentions here by name, verse 33. You have sent to John, that is John the Baptist, you've sent to John and he has testified to the truth, but the testimony which I receive is not from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. 
And he was the lamp that was burning and was shining, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. We've seen this as well from the beginning of the Gospel of John as people were flocking to John the Baptist and they were hearing him preaching repentance. The kingdom is at hand. They were coming to him. And for a while, they were basking in his light. They were listening to what he was saying. They were receptive. And when you look at what his testimony was back there, and you remember, he said things like, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He says, I am not the light, but I've come to testify of the light. come to just proclaim, hey, look at him. Look at Christ. He is your Savior. He is the Messiah that you've been waiting for for so long. He's here to set you free. He's here to rescue you. He's here to give you life. John, over and over again, that was his message. He was a one-trick pony. He just kept preaching Jesus to them. And they were coming to him, and they were intrigued, and some of them were drawn to him, and some of them were baptized by him. And he says, you have this testimony of John. You heard what he said. You heard him speaking truth and speaking right to the heart. You experienced it. So there's the testimony of John, which they for a time received. And then there's the testimony of the works themselves. Look at verse 36. But the testimony which I have is greater than the testimony of John. For the works which the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I do testify about me that the Father has sent me. Because, hey, the proof's in the pudding here. You've been seeing what I've been doing. As he's been traveling around, speaking truth like no one else did before, cutting right to the heart, right through to people's heart, right? touching them at the deepest levels of their being, penetrating, pulling the cloak down of the religious people and ministering to the prostitutes and tax collectors and then healing. And we've already seen his healing ministry. We've seen him healing the the son of the nobleman at the end of chapter 4 where this little boy was on death's door and Jesus didn't even have to go to him. He just spoke a word and the son was revived and made well and made whole and then The man at the pool of Bethesda, most recently, the beginning of John chapter 5, the guy who was paralyzed, remember this, 38 long years of paralysis, and Jesus went to him and ministered to him and healed him and restored him to full health. He says, you know the works? And over and over and over again, and then you may remember this, but go ahead and turn to the end of John's gospel. Turn to John, first of all, turn to John chapter 20. And look what the writer of the Gospel of John says about these works, these magnificent, life-giving works. Therefore, in verse 30, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in His name. Later in chapter 21, Look down at verse 25. Similar idea, but he adds this detail. And there are also many other things which Jesus did, which if they were written in detail, I suppose that even the world itself would not contain the books that would be written. As he just went around doing good. Offering himself. Offering his mercy. Offering his forgiveness. Offering reunion with the Creator. And then as a sign, showing them that He is the one who has the ability to give life on the spiritual level. In order to prove that to them, He just kept doing things on the natural level or the physical level to demonstrate His power. 
All the people that he healed, every eye that was restored, every blind eye, I should say, that was restored to sight, or lame person who was made to walk again, or Lazarus who is dead and Jesus resurrects him. Every time he did that sort of thing, he was saying, I have the ability to give life not only to your body, but to your soul. And so here we are, even as church people, even as the religious community, and we do, do we not struggle with all the same things that people out there struggle with in terms of fears regarding our health, despair when the numbers in our checking account are going down instead of up, being distraught over a family member who's gone astray or is making reckless decisions and just wreaking havoc and the personal impact that we have to sustain as a result of that, just being frustrated and angry and condemning because of it. Hard for us, too, to believe their life is not wrapped up in what people think of us or how much they like us or how many little hearts or smile emojis we get in our social media interactions or how many followers we have or whatever. Or how our body happens to be feeling today. Or how our marriage is doing right now. Or how our job is going. Or how things are in our country. We too struggle to believe that life is found in Christ and not all those things. Am I right? We do. we lying. We said it wasn't true. And so Jesus just keeps putting before us himself and saying, I'm your life. I'm everything you need taking care of you at the deepest level. I'm your living bread. I'm your living water. We're going to see that just a little bit later in this gospel where he says, hey, remember you had the, your, your relatives, your ancestors had the bread in the wilderness. I'm the bread. Remember they drank water. I'm the water to satisfy your soul. He knows we have a hard time believing him. He knows that our nature is to distrust. Our nature is to be suspicious. Oh, it just can't be. It just sounds too good to be true. Or it sounds too simple. Or what about my part? Can't I do something to secure this for myself? Because, I mean, don't take that away from me. I need to prove something. And he says, there's nothing to prove. It's all been proven. I'm here to prove it. I'm the righteous one. Look at my works. Look. Behold. Live. So, only made it through two so far. John the Baptist, the witness of his works. The witness of the Father is next, and he's been alluding to this already. And this is, of course, the, the main witness. Verse 37, and the Father who sent me, he has testified of me. You have neither heard his voice at any time nor seen his form. You do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe him whom he sent. He's saying, I mean, think about this. This is shocking. He's saying to a bunch of religious people who think they love God, who think they are committed to God, the things of God, the word of God. And he says to them, hey, you, you never even heard him. What? What? He says, because if you've heard him, you'd be running to me. You'd be trusting me. And me alone. Me alone, he says. The Father sent the Son. And like Father, like Son. Everything the Son does, he says, I'm just doing what the Father showed me to do. Just saying what the Father told me to say. Even in that, Jesus is deflecting glory away from himself to his Father. Submissive, humble, 
selfless, gracious, loving, merciful, like no one else who's ever touched down on this earth ever. Ever. He says, the Father is with me and He's for me. And that's the way it is. And the Jews are showing for all their professed allegiance to God, all their seriousness and piety, they weren't really trusting Him. They were negotiating with God, really. Still trusting their own ability to give themselves life through their own rituals, traditions, abilities to do the good stuff, to get the good stuff. It's a huge temptation for all of us because we know in our natural world that's the way things work. What you get or what you, what you pay for is what you get, right? If you're going to get something, you've got to earn it. It's the blood, the sweat, and the tears. And this is a totally different operating system, a totally different economy where it's just all a free gift. And he says you're missing the heart of God proceeding forth with that kind of free grace. Looking at yourselves in self-righteousness, trying to keep the checklist going, evaluating and continually judging other people that you're basically competing with, trying to do better than. And Jesus says that comes out in all your condescension. Whether it's in tone, word, or action, or all three He says, you're missing it. You're missing him. You're missing God. And so I'm here to persuade you. I'm here to show you. I'm even giving you witnesses. You want witnesses? I'll give you witnesses. We'll stack them up. Just come. Just come to me. And so he goes on from here, and it makes sense, knowing that the revelation of God is his word, is Scripture. And so he says, okay, let's talk about Scripture. He says, you search the Scriptures. Like, you're committed to the Scriptures. Uh, Jewish religious people, many of them had not only portions of the Bible memorized, but entire like books of the Bible memorized, committed to memory. That's a lot of effort and labor over the Word. And he says, you search them because you think that in them you have eternal life. Indeed, it is these that testify of me. And you're unwilling to come to me so you might have life. He says, they're all about me. They're all pointing to me. Irony of ironies, God is standing right in their midst, and they're still just kind of like, who's this? What does he say? What, who does he think he is? I mean, imagine that. And yet, that, that message is scandalous, isn't it? That it's just truly all of him, not of me. Not of other people. Him. Period. Like end of sentence, paragraph, end of chapter, end of book, end of story. Just Him. Him. That's it. Jesus. That's it. Him. It's hard. What? So I'm just left like God. I'm just left with just you? He says, yeah. That's what I made you for. And that's what life is for. And when all of us said, like our foreparents, I will be like God. I will secure life for myself. I will do it my way. I will cover my shame. 
I will make up for it. I will atone for it. I will control my life. I will control the people around me. I will make life work. God says, that's death. It's death. To give you myself back. Give you life. So come to me. So he says, they testify about me, but you're unwilling to come to me. They say, you might have life. I don't receive glory from men. Mark said, it's, it's, it's about ourselves. It's about other people. We're just so drawn to other people. We're drawn to the latest Christian celebrity, singer, pastor, author, whatever. We're drawn to them, aren't we? And, and some, some of us, many of us have lived long enough to realize, oh, wait a second. The guy I put so much stock in, all of a sudden there's some scandal or something comes out, and that person turns out is just a person. And so Jesus says this to them and to us, I don't receive glory from men, but I know you. I know you don't have the love of God in yourselves. I have come in my Father's name, and you don't receive me. If another comes in his own name, you gladly receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another, and you don't seek the glory that is from the one and only God? I was so drawn as a, as a young guy trying to find my place in the world, trying to establish myself, trying to feel, find something I could feel good about. So drawn to the Christian heroes of mine. And some of them I was able to rub shoulders with and have lunch with and spend time with. And you know what I discovered? They're just like me, deeply flawed at best. It's not about humans and human glory, even though we play that game. It's just what makes the world go round and the world has its version and the church has its version, but it's all the same, really. I've talked to Christian comedians at high levels of Christian comedy. I've talked to Christian musicians at high levels of Christian music. I've talked to pastors at high levels of megachurch ministry, and they all say the same thing. Boy, it's just cutthroat out there. Interesting. And Jesus says, I'm life. I'm the one worthy. I have the glory. You know, the, the, the rabbis taught that through diligent study, you would gain and maintain life for yourself. And uh, for a lot, as you've heard me say, some of you, you know, having several Bible degrees and seminary at the highest levels and tons of books and everything else, and, and I've come to appreciate just the simplicity. And, and so... I'm going to read to you from my favorite children's storybook Bible for a moment, if I could. It's called the Jesus Storybook Bible, and I would highly recommend it. And uh, I'm not going to say a lot about this because I will break down like a blubbering, whimpering, crying dad up here. But I remember reading this to my girls when they were little, and it was during a season in which I was realizing so much of my knowledge was just that knowledge and was missing the heart and the life of Christ in my own study and in my own walk, and I was coming to see that, and and God was renewing my heart and mind and exciting me in the truth, the simplicity of who Christ is. And we discovered this storybook Bible, and so I remember reading to the girls and thinking, boy, I, I hope they come away from these types of times not feeling pressure to just have Bible information in their heads or just how to conform to some outward standard, though standards are obviously appropriate in their certain spheres. But I hope they can come away most of all knowing who Jesus is for them and the reality of who they are, the complexity of who they are. Temptations of all kinds unique to them, challenges unique to them, and that they don't feel pressure to just do stuff 
to just keep up with, just to play the game like everybody else in the Christian world, but they would just authentically know this is who your God is. And so this resource I found helpful, and I thought maybe I'll read it to you, just a little bit of it, where the author, Sally Lloyd-Jones, sums up her approach. She says, God wrote, and listen up, this is perfectly harmonious with what we're studying this morning. God wrote, I love you. He wrote it in the sky and on the earth and under the sea. He wrote his message everywhere because God created everything in his world to reflect him like a mirror, to show us what he is like, to help us know him, to make our hearts sing. The way a kitten chases her tail, the way red poppies grow wild, the way a dolphin swims. And God put into words too and wrote it in a book called the Bible. Now some people think the Bible is a book of rules telling you what you should and shouldn't do. The Bible certainly does have rules in it. They show you how life works best. But the Bible isn't mainly about you and what you should be doing. It's about God and what He has done. Other people think the Bible is a book of heroes showing you people you should copy. The Bible does have heroes in it. But as you'll soon find out, most of them aren't heroes at all. They make huge mistakes, sometimes on purpose. They get afraid and run away. At times, they're downright mean. No, the Bible isn't a book of rules or a book of heroes. The Bible is most of all a story. It's an adventure story about a young hero who comes from a far country to win back his lost treasure. It's a love story about a brave prince who leaves his palace, his throne, everything to rescue the one he loves. It's like the most wonderful of fairy tales that has come true in real life. You see, the best thing about this story is it's true. There are lots of stories in the Bible, but all the stories are telling one big story. The story of how God loves his children and comes to rescue them. It takes the whole Bible to tell the story. And at the center... There is a baby. Every story in the Bible whispers his name. He is like the missing piece in a puzzle, the piece that makes all the other pieces fit together. And suddenly, you see this beautiful picture. It's about Christ. It's not about people. It's not primarily about us. It's about him. It all points to him. It shows us who our God is. It shows us in everything we see about humanity, we see a picture of ourselves and our own selfishness and greed and corruption. And it shows us our Savior, the one all the Old Testament points forward to that is coming. The New Testament says He has come. And it's all pointing us to Him. I was taking notes as I'm studying this past week, and I like to draw pictures. Some, some know that about me, too. I have an ongoing joke with Tony Falvo, a couple of you, about my stick figures. I'm always drawing stick figures for the young people and other settings. At any rate, I'm drawing, and I'm just sort of drawing out what I'm hearing from Jesus here. And I just I keep lining up these witnesses that he mentions, and all these arrows just pointing to him. All of them just pointing to him. He's just central. He's just the point. Like a flashing neon sign. Just look up. Look to Christ. Look to him. The Bible, in its law, in its commands, gives us what love looks like. It gives us what, in a very real sense, ought to be but is not. It is helpful. It is needed. Our our culture, as you know, and I, I don't want to ignore this, our culture is suffering 
for departure from some of its principles and laws and norms and will continue down this path of suffering in all likelihood by departing from the standards and order that God has designed for the good of all of his people. That is the truth. But we have much more to offer than just some moral standard. God says, I'm offering all of you life, and you are all in the church, outside the church, ready for this? Be scanned a little bit, it's okay. You're all equally unqualified. And to all of you, I offer by grace life. Full pardon, forgiveness, reunion with your Creator, assurance that you belong to Him, that you're adopted sons and daughters, you belong to Him no matter what you've done, where you've been, what's happened, who did what to you, whatever you did to yourself, whatever. He says, I have you. In fact, he'll say later in John chapter 10, He's the good shepherd who lays down His life for the sheep. And nobody takes Him away from Him. That's you and that's me. And our position in Christ. A few more verses. He says, uh, verse 45, Do not think I will accuse you before the Father. The one who accuses you is Moses. Ironically, the one you're clinging to, you've totally misinterpreted. He says, in whom you have set your hope. You've set your hope in Moses. you followers of Moses, but you don't even understand Moses. For if you believed him, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But if you don't believe his writings, how will you believe Um, if you, I have so many thoughts and I have to limit myself, but if you yourself find thinking, you just, okay, how do I not miss Jesus in my study of Scripture? That should be the question begged in all of our hearts and minds. And the things I could say, maybe I will just quickly list them, but I would just say, if you ever want to talk about this, Pastor Rob, myself, we're happy to talk with you about it. But here's a little list of things that I jotted down quickly. How, do I, how is it that we miss Jesus in Scripture, I think it's preeminently when we come to it as a book of rules by which to, one, prove ourselves to be good moral people, cleaning up the outside of the cup or the dish, but not seeing the heart, the inside, and the reality of what it is. Uh, we, we come to it to prove ourselves to be intelligent or insightful people or wise people. Coming to it to um, try to control outcomes for ourselves. Well, if I just do the right things, then my life will be favored or blessed in some way. I'll be able to secure certain outcomes for myself that I feel like I need for my life to be complete. And we come to it when, when it's a, a way by which, like a, a, a lever by which we try to control other people, whether our kids or our grandkids or even our communities or, or the country, like to try to control people, to get something that we feel like we need when Jesus said, hey, I'm, I'm what you need. In fact, the, the wellspring of life and the wellspring of love, that the only way that's ever going to come out of you is when you see that I am everything you need. You don't need to take from other people. You don't need to control other people. That's how he ministers to the monster that's inside of all of us. The selfish monster that's inside of all of us that's even so seductive and insidious that it would even take and hijack the Bible for its own purposes, and that's what we naturally do. And so Jesus says, come with that. Come to me. Lay it down at my feet. Look up and be saved. Marvel over the righteous one, the one who is life, the one who gives you life freely as a gift. Moses 
was testifying of him. Scriptures were testifying of him. The Father testifies of him. The very works he was doing testify of him. John testified of him. And then it got him killed. Interesting. The word testimony, witness, that you see in your Bible, in the original language, um, it's the word, to see if this sounds familiar, it's the word martyr. Got Christ killed. Got many of his apostles killed, still getting people killed. Not, not, um, not preaching morality to an immoral world, that, that can get people killed for sure. It can go both ways in that whole thing, in that melee. But, but this message that gets Jesus killed is when he just says, it's all of me. I'm your life. When he says to you, I'm all you got. Naturally speaking, those are fighting words. Don't you dare. Don't you dare strip from me any ounce and semblance of honor I could have or something I could at least get my hands on or control. Don't you dare tell me that all I can do is like a damsel in distress, just cry out in humiliation, please save me. Please give me life. Which is why I think Jesus says, it's the tax collectors, it's the prostitutes, it's the lowest of the low who are most quick to come to me because they're just not under any delusion that they have anything anymore. They've just come to terms with who they really are, a complete train wreck. That's the truth of who we really are. And so there's all this evidence he's given. Uh, one, last, one last point to make before I wrap it up. I was thinking about this and, and how there's all these testimonies in this book that God has graciously inspired and given to us. And then there's, of course, the testimony of one another and fellowship with one another and all sorts of other good testifiers to the glory of Jesus and the life of Jesus, plenty of them. And, and I was thinking if, for people who perhaps in the audience who have never even touched the Bible or new to church or whatever, if I could just point just briefly to Maybe some other testifiers. See if these are helpful. Even the changing seasons, moving from winter to spring. It's like moving from death to life, isn't it? As you start to see the budding flowers and the green springing up. The beginnings of leaves on the trees and blooming flowers. We know that's coming. And, and, and God has wired, even into the seasons, this evidence of this cycle of death to life. And then there are holidays, like we have Good Friday coming up and Easter Sunday coming up, and we have other holidays that just point us to Christ. Aren't you thankful that our, how boring would our year be if it weren't punctuated with holidays? And they all point us to Jesus. And then human history itself, we get the whole, remember the B.C., A.D. timeline thing? Like all of human history measured, and of course that's kind of a Western Phenomenon, but even when they've tried to change it, so well, it's all right, it's BCE and CE before the common era and common era, but still that time period as the pinnacle climax time period of all human history was the time Jesus was here. Every time a movie highlights sacrificial love, forgiveness, redemption, loyalty, triumph of good over evil, every hero who we know humanly has got to be flawed, even if we don't see those flaws, we know it, but yet with Jesus there are no such flaws. 
Every human experience of guilt and shame and incompleteness and loneliness and dissatisfaction and depression and anger and conflict. Every experience pointing us to you need Christ and you need His life. And every positive human experience of reading stories and watching movies and laughter and music and art and building amazing architecture all of those things, all reflective of a God and specifically of Christ and His design and His gifts and His creativity, everything we experience in this world pointing us to Him, the One from whom, through whom, and for whom it all exists. And every disease that we experience and every ache and every pain and every disability points us to the One who alone can make all things whole and well in the end and will. And every time someone dies, every funeral cries out for resurrection hope to the one who says, because I live, you will live also. There's plenty of evidence. I'm sure there's an infinite amount more than I just rattled off. God loves us. He is for us. He is persuading us. He is coming to us. He is here stacking up the witnesses saying, hey, just believe me. You can trust me with your salvation. You don't have to do it yourself. You can't do it yourself. You don't have to look to that family member, that spouse, that kid to save you. They can't save you. You don't have to look to that job to save you or that position or that title or that admiration or that number of follows or likes. They can't save you. You don't have to look to a a guru, a self-help talker, a YouTuber, or whatever. You don't have to look to a politician. Thank God for that, right? There's a true king with a capital K and he is perfect and he rules in perfect justice. Not some humanly concocted, manufactured, counterfeit version. True justice. He is our King. And He offers us life. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Let's pray. God, we thank You for our time in Your Word this morning. And for Your pursuit of us relentless pursuit. And I know I speak for brothers and sisters here when I say sorry for when we have stiffened you. When you, through our circumstances, through our life experiences, the good, the bad, the easy, the hard, when you, through the trials, when you, through the suffering, when you, through the aches and the pains, and when you, through the fears and the anxieties and the anger and the frustration and the impossible to satisfy desires when through all those things you just keep pointing us over and over and over to the one who gives life. Apart from your grace, apart from your spirit, all we would do, God, is run away from you and you just keep running toward us and then you sent your spirit to open our eyes to see and to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, who loves us and gave himself up for us, who left it all out on the field, who held nothing back, went even to his own death to say, I love you. We see him on the cross and we see what we deserve. And we hear his words, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. 
And we are blown away that you forgive us. And that you love us. And then we pause and we think about those moments and days of silence. After he perished. And we, God, just like the disciples, would be running frantic. We wouldn't know what to do. Where do we go? And on the third day, he rose. And that is victory, Lord, that you have secured. Through your son's resurrection. And he is our only hope for life physically, ultimately. And he is our only hope for life spiritually. Thank you so much for relentlessly pursuing us and persuading us of that fact. Help us to receive and to rejoice and to be set free by your provision through Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.